Welcome to Sin Apprentice, Episode 3, Time is a Flying, It's Almost Christmas. I am your host, Ken, and as always, I am joined not by a guest host, uh, but I guess you are now, you know, the co-host of, of Sin Apprentice. Yeah, we're in Part 3. Uh, I think it's... It's great. This is Anthony. Anthony, tell the world hello. Hello, world. Nice <laughs> to see you again. Well, you can't see them. You know, it's not... I can see them in my mind. Well, I guess. We've got a <laughs> jam-packed episode today because Anthony and I are hot off the heels of having watched in the theater <gasps> Spider-Man No Way Home, and I will just spoil right away and say, <laughs> wow. We'll talk non-spoilers at first, and then when we talk about the things we appreciate, we'll go into spoiler territory, and I'll put timestamps in there, so if people want to skip, they can totally skip by it. This is, uh, you know, Spider-Man possibly breaking uh, into the multiverse with Doctor Strange. Uh, Believe me, if you think you have already been spoiled on everything in this movie, (laughs) and you think you've figured it all out, you have not. I guarantee, Uh, even though we've already watched, there's... Just tons oh, of I things know. that we just haven't picked up on. This 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 is a movie and a half. Uh, Anthony, uh, the credits rolled. What was your first reaction in your brain pan to Spider-Man No Way Home? I think my brain engine shut down. <laughs> I think I was kind of just sitting there. And I was still anticipating the mid and after credit scenes, of yep. course. But I, it was pretty much done by then. Yeah. Uh, at least after the after credit scene. I just kind of I looked at you. I looked at everyone else. And I just, oh, man, I really don't have words to describe. I keep saying that I'm dead. Yeah. I've died four times but uh, like that's it yeah it's like it's an it's like um an after-death experience it's like you know (laughs) this is the afterlife that i'm in right now well and i think uh, there's there's no way i even in my my mind am going to be able to really articulate what works so well about this movie that's something maybe we'll talk about next time uh you know but from a purely emotional standpoint this movie just wrapped itself around my heart and and did all kinds of things uh, I, I, I'm an easy crier, but I cried probably the back 45 minutes of this movie like the whole and time. not just, uh, not, not the whole time, just uh-huh. off and on. There were all these things happening and it wasn't just sad moments. There were moments of, of things coming together and just heartfelt moments and, and character beats. And there was so much happening and it was at such a emotional level while somehow still being fun and funny. Uh, but gut punch dramatic. Uh, this movie has it all and and juggles it so well. It's almost like how you plan out movies for me to watch each <laughs> episode. You or um, nope. how you talk about Sora's visions. How you nope. imagine like it would roller coaster well. It, it does that sort of thing where it's yeah. pretty light towards the beginning and just slowly gets darker, but comes back up at the very 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 end. This is this is my favorite kind of, of superhero movie drama because what they do is for, you know, 15, 20 minute stretches, they'll just take a step away from the action or whatever the A plot is and just character build or let characters play or or just give you moments where characters are interacting there at is a, about a casual level. A minute, maybe two minutes mm-hmm. towards the end where there's just some people talking for a bit and it's really what you've been waiting for yeah. and Yeah. Oh, man, that was so satisfying yeah. to watch. I know some people, you know, I, I see criticism every time one of these Marvel movies goes past two hours. This one's 220, 230, uh, but earns, I think, every minute. And I love the moments that they took where they're 
they're not necessary, but at the same time they are. They are emotionally necessary to make everything in this film really register and have power. And I'm glad they did sort of have a wrapping up ending for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last one ended on a very, very, very huge very open note. Yeah. And um, this one really just, it, even if, because, you know, Tom Holland's contract is up, he's definitely going to do it again. Oh, but yeah. in case he wouldn't, the way they wrap it up just really feels final and it yeah. feels like it can definitely end there. Yeah, it feels like the end of a chapter yeah. where you're okay going to the next big kind of group of but stories. But if you never read again, I mean, yeah, you're yeah. fine. This, this really wraps up this current uh, Spider-Man arc. The high school age. Uh, plus some, yeah, the, the high school years. And really, it leaves plenty of possibility, but it also feels like, you know what, it's okay. It's sort of like Endgame. If they had never made another Marvel movie after Endgame, you would have felt this really ended in a place yeah. that's satisfying. It's called Endgame. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and good on them for going on. But um, yeah, I just, I was completely blown away. I was blown away throughout. I was impressed <laughs> I throughout. I clapped in the you theater did. so loudly. And we've made a LaBeouf meme just in the theater. <laughs> you know, we've made fun of hands. clappers before too. And Literally. Yeah. Actually. But, but it just, it was, it was a... It was a great crowd we were in, too. True. I got to admit. There was some guy in the front row, and at the beginning, he just said something really funny. I don't remember what it yeah, was, but yeah. it just, it was like, oh, is it going to be that kind of amazing yeah. theater experience that I ever had? Yeah. First time I've clapped at a movie in theaters, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very communal experience. Everybody Seriously. was everybody was respectful, but they were still, you could hear them having fun and enjoying things. I think the only distracting part, uh, there's one moment in this where something very sad happens, and there was this 10-year-old, 9 or 10-year-old over in front of me. And he about pitched a fit and he decided, mom, dad, we are leaving. And I'm, I'm kind of out of the side of my eye watching this happen. I'm like, yeah, if I was nine or 10, this is where I would leave too. And that kid was serious. He even walked out of the theater and good on his parents for just sitting there brave. (laughs) They just sat there and waited for him. And it took him like five minutes to calm down and come back. And he tried to talk him into leaving again. That kid was not happy. Um, but that's that's the kind of movie it is. It's it's not a movie that uh, sugarcoats or pulls punches. It really says, you know what? We've set up all this this dramatic weight in the Spider-Man into the universe. Let's pay it off. And it's perfectly clever, and it's very perfectly playful. Yeah. I just I can't get over all the little things that they pulled, yeah. and they just I don't know. Somehow they they kept. I assume they kept the plot that they wanted, but put in all these like little things that just yep. make you think of like there's. You know, um, a few scenes that I've talked about to you already where um, Tom is doing certain things that pay homage, and that is just, yeah, it killed me. I recognize it in the theater, which is yep. a new thing for me. Yeah. Uh, so, so what I'd like to do, let's go ahead and just start our spoilers here. Bruce Willis is dead. Sha-la-la-la. He wasn't both all along. Sha-la-la-la-la. Only the kid could see him. I don't want to do huge spoilers. I don't want to unwrap the plot or give examples of, of a lot of things. But I, I do want to warn everybody, this is a new movie. There's a lot of surprise here. And so we're we're going to kind of open up the conversation here for probably the next 10, yeah, 15 can, minutes. I can definitely agree with Tom how he said it's like the biggest, most ambitious Spider-Man movie ever. Oh, yeah, and alongside 100%. that, 
I think it's at least tied with Endgame. Uh, this this is on track. I need to watch it a few more times. This is honestly on track to be my favorite Marvel movie. It was just so well constructed, so well made, so well acted, so well written. It just it, it, it really is blew me away. My favorite already. Okay. Like actually, already. I just I need to make sure that it just didn't hit me at the right time. I got to mm. watch it again to make sure that all those emotional punches really do have the and weight I that I think they do. big on the emotional punches at mm-hmm. all. Like, it, it was sad to me, but honestly, I was just so excited to see all these things happening. Yeah. You know, the Green Goblin wearing his, like, classic suit like yeah. we saw in the trailer. That's yeah. just, that's yeah. cool. So, and, so what we're going to do. Right, so let's, I'm that's getting okay. ahead of myself. That's okay. I just, so, spoiler, spoiler, uh, spoiler, spoiler warning. Walk away from spoilers. Check the timestamps in the, the description, right. and you can find out time when stamps, to hop cool. ahead so that you know uh, how to get past all this. Uh, But what I want to do is Anthony and I are going to talk about three things each, just three things that stood out Mm. to us. We're going to take turns. Um, Do you want to start? Do you want me to start? (laughs) You can start. Okay. You're going to get in the ball rolling, as I say. Okay. I'm going to start. My first one was uh, spoilers again. Big spoilers. Are you saying in order or just in order of like – just three things. Just in general. Okay. Just in general. Like naming your five favorites. Giant spoilers. We got to start by talking about Andrew Garfield and Tobey (laughs) Maguire. Have to. (laughs) because necessary i everybody and their brother knew these guys are showing up worst, this is the worst kept secret I, I heard in all it, of movies i think i don't know where i heard it on but like yeah. yeah i agree with him it's just the worst kept worst kept secret secret in hollywood ever until i watched the movie because what marvel has done is they have allowed us to so focus on the secret that there mm-hmm. are going to be these cameos that Perfect. what none of us were expecting is that for a, a half of this movie for an hour plus of this movie, Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire not only show up, they're full main characters. Yep. They are legitimate players in everything. And this wraps up uh, or serves as a, a an amazing sequel to the <laughs> Tobey Maguire's. <laughs> it's, did it it's, again. I did. <laughs> it, it, this works as a Spider-Man 4 if you're a Tobey Maguire fan. Mm-hmm. This works as an amazing Spider-Man 3 if you're an Andrew Garfield fan. And this works as an incredible Spider-Man 3 in the MCU. Uh, and so somehow, the back half of this movie, literally half of this movie, they juggle that concept and they do it so intricately, and it, it's all so woven together. And it really feels like when that when they show up, Tom Holland stops being the star of the film mm-hmm. and becomes one of three one of, stars yep. of the film. And, and honestly, they give them equal time and equal play. I would. I would almost say that at least for me, it felt like Toby and Andrew actually stole the show until like the very last 15 minutes because they just, I mean, they were on it. I, I was, they were having a blast. You could feel it. You could feel how much fun they were having. We know how like he can be sometimes. He just, man, he he put himself into it. He put his 2002, 2007 (laughs) Spider-Man into it. Like. Yeah. yeah, and I, I love that they didn't de-age those two. They de-aged the villains, but not the Spider-Man. And that's for they plot let them, reasons. yes, for plot reasons, which you know it goes into. But they have lived lives, and they have had to deal with their mistakes. And now they're meeting this new younger Spider-Man, and they're helping him. Uh, and and it was really three generations. It's it's the the older middle aged guy. It's the you know probably he's supposed to be you know thirty so, something, something and then young Tom Holland. Each of them is in an actual different decade of their life. Yeah. Tobey Maguire is forty six years old. Uh, Andrew Garfield is thirty seven, and Tom Holland is twenty five. That's perfect. Like almost perfect. Yeah. Like 
Ten yeah. years apart, almost perfect. So, so that's my first one. Just the sheer magic act that this, <laughs> <laughs> the magic act that this movie pulls off in the last half. We all thought we had it figured out, <laughs> and we knew Marvel's secret. It was going to be a cameo. This is not a cameo. This is a full three Spider Man. Yes, a tri Spider, a tri Spider movie. Uh, wow. Uh, so, so what's what's kind of your first one that you want to throw out there? Um. Probably the references in general, okay. actually. It's kind of what lingers Easter in my mind the most. or references uh, to previous little, movies that are legitimate. Yeah, the, kind of more, more so that. Um, I keep thinking about, I just love it because I was rewatching the Amazing Spider-Man movies in preparation because I just a few months ago rewatched the same movies because mm-hmm. I wanted to. And, you know, I've already seen the Tom Holland ones very recently. So yeah. as you're watching them, there's a scene in the Amazing Spider-Man where he first meets the lizard and he's on the bridge. And what happens is the lizard's just throwing cars around. It's just they're going off the building. I'm sure if you're watching this movie, you've probably seen that too. Um, And what he does is he catches these cars with his webs. And just like that, when um, not with the lizard, but when Octavius is up there on the bridge, Tom Holland does the same thing, almost almost shot for shot at one point, whenever he goes and catches that one Mm -hmm. hanging onto the web. And that's also, like, I also feel like it could also be a... um, uh, homage to Toby when he, he's in his first Spider-Man movie, grabbing the mm-hmm. the freight train car and uh, MJ and everything. And there's and a lot of I visual elements here that really, mm. we had somebody with us who had never seen uh, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Mans mm. or the Andrew Garfield Spider-Mans, and she still loved it. She yeah. she had a very different experience. But she kept up with the movie. She understood what was happening. But for those of us who were familiar with those movies. There was such a a richer series of of references. That's so that's talent. Yeah, the way they put that together, you yeah. can still enjoy this movie even if you don't get anything else. And that is yeah. one of the uh, biggest um, ambitions I think that a lot of directors and creators in Hollywood have whenever they're making a series of movies. You know, I hear a lot about how do you make it so that someone enjoys it even if they haven't watched your last few. You know, how yeah. do you not just make it a, a sequel movie? And they, they just balance that well. I I 100% agree. So so we've got kind of the tri-Spider-Men. We've got all of the, not just Easter eggs, but really deep references that were mm-hmm. integral to plot and character. Um, my second one, I think, was the performances. Uh, and and how well each, each actor really had a grasp on what they were there for and what was happening and what they served. And you could just feel it. And it started it started with, uh, you know, the kind of the trio of, of Spidey, MJ, and Ned. They have such chemistry on screen. What I was really surprised by, Tom Holland has really incredible chemistry with all the villains. He has really incredible chemistry with with Aunt May and Happy. He has really incredible chemistry with the other Spider-Man actors. There's there's this feeling of almost family. Like we have all done yeah. Spider-Man movies. We have all experienced this together at different times. And here we all are on set together. And you could just you could feel how much each actor not just was delivering their all, but really loved their character and and what they were doing on screen. Uh, that. You don't often feel that. Even in a movie like Endgame, you don't get that level of consistency from actor to actor to actor who, you know, in Endgame, somebody will show up for five minutes and you can feel that <laughs> I'm here for five minutes and I'm, I'm going to give my best, but they don't 
feel like they're a part of the fabric. Aside from this, um, oh. the main six Avengers, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the ones that travel back in time. By the way, that was brilliant. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Um, I think, continuing off that note, my second is the interactions of the three Spider-Men themselves. Um, between the little jokes between. Yeah. Talking about how both Tom and uh, Toby's Spider-Man have both have love, and just Andrew's like, you know, Toby says to him, you know, you'll get this someday. Just, just keep, keep trying. Yeah, love that. They're talking about the differences in their web fluid, and even um, interacting whenever they're fighting the sinister four-ish, Five. <laughs> something like that. Um, in the sinister influx, because sometimes yeah. they're all over the place. <laughs> um, yeah. Even when they're fighting them, they, you know, they interact in special like um. There's that part where they just completely mess up. What happens yeah. is um, Tom tries to web something. It messes up Andrew. Andrew tries to recover. So They're back, out of sync. Messes up Toby. Yeah. 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 All of them are used to working alone. Yeah. Completely. I mean, almost completely. Toby had like Harry for the last 10 minutes yeah. of Spider-Man 3. But aside from that, they are just so inexperienced at teams. But luckily, Tom Holland has the Avengers. And it and... gives the younger one a reason <clears throat> to step up and be... Kind of the lead Spider-Man. Yeah. And that makes up for his lack of experience yeah. or his uh, younger self. Yeah. It really makes him feel more equal in that way, too. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, my my kind of third and last one is uh, I, I had talked about how emotional this movie is. <laughs> I want to talk about the gut punches. Mm-hmm. And this is, man, this is even more spoilery than spoilery gets. It's like um, the turning point of the movie. It really is. Uh, Aunt May, thinking about. Yeah. Aunt May does not make it. First time, I think. In a yes. Spider-Man yes. Movie. Aunt May always lives. And not only does she not make it, but they subvert things and they assign to her the role that Uncle Ben has traditionally had. <laughs> Obviously, in this universe, there was an Uncle Ben and he did die tragically. They've alluded to that. But with May, she dies. It's, it's you know, Tom Holland's Spider-Man feels it's his fault. And here is that Uncle Ben plot. She even delivers the great power, great responsibility line. And I swear, if that's what they've been planning all along, <laughs> my goodness, the mad geniuses this that are running Marvel. Actually, my favorite Aunt May too. Yeah. Um, yeah. The one in Raimi was a little too sassy. Yeah. If you if you could say she was kind of mean. Yeah, sometimes. and she's so old too. Yeah, seriously. Um, and are you sure that's not a great great aunt? <laughs> yeah, mean, that's, she's up there. The Amazing um, Spider-Man one just wasn't involved enough, yeah. I think. But the perfect balance here from Marissa Tomei yeah. Yeah. and, you know, uh, but it's too. such a gut punch and not just that a character dies. I mean, they really hang on it and they they in a good way manipulate your emotions. They certainly <laughs> allow you to watch Spider-Man really take the brunt and that, of this. That is his thing in this movie. That yeah. is his development. A lot of people have complained about Tom Holland's Spider-Man not having enough flaws. He's just too good of a person. But man, the way that he just he he really he really just has to deal with yep. the fact that his life is ruining his friend's life. Yep. That is the central character development for him. Yep. And well, and and the gut punches don't stop there. And they're different kind of gut punches uh, when when MJ falls. And uh, Tom oh. Holland goes to save her, but the glider takes him out. And Andrew Garfield has this moment. And you can tell it, they don't say it, but obviously he's been thinking about losing Gwen all these years. And he's thought about the hundred different ways he should have saved her in that fall instead of the way he did it. And, and he saves her and his face in that moment. It's a good moment. It's a happy moment. It's not sad. 
but it was such a gut punch for me. Yeah. Um, Tom Holland at the end, now he's facing Osborne and Osborne is responsible for, for his aunt's death. That, that was probably one of the most brutal fight scenes I've seen in one of the MCU movies, not from, from the level of violence, but what it meant. Yeah. 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 And emotion. This was the one time where this kid is not a kid. He is, is so, and just the way he handles the performance and the choreography of that fight, he is going for a kill. He is beating this man to death. Uh, (laughs) and, And to the point he has to be physically restrained to stop. And that was such a, a powerful, uh, and, and really a, a kind of a, a bridge and a coming together of this idea of maybe we can fix these guys instead of killing them. That mm-hmm. was really the test right there, the ultimate test. Because he was the one that really, yeah. really oh, man. Yeah, and, and just so many times from, from Aunt May forward, oh, I just I felt like I was being smacked and, and, in the best of movie ways. Uh, and so that's that's 100% my third one. And that I love was it. It, it reminds such me an experience. so much of – Batman the Joker mm-hmm. between Tom Holland and William Dafoe. It's really just such, and you know, you could almost see that for Toby and William Dafoe, but it's just something about it isn't the same. Yeah. The way that, you know, um, I think Toby might be a little more selfish in a way, and Tom is just the, the his Spider Man is the epitome of self sacrifice. And so you pit someone who wants to do nothing but ruin lives yeah. with someone who wants to do really, really, and I mean, literally, Nothing but save them. Yeah. And it's just, it's yeah. such, I never thought William Defoe's Green Goblin would be such nope. a good match for Tom Holland's Spider-Man. They have but, no history, uh-uh. but then they do. Mm-hmm. And and the John Watts, the director, and the writers of this were so clever in recognizing that bringing these villains from other universes is great and all, but it doesn't give weight to our main character because he's never met them. Mm-hmm. And so by having that moment where even if it's just with Green Goblin, he now has very recent raw history with this person. And I think that's why Green Goblin really is the sort of main villain of mm-hmm. the movie, if anyone. Yeah. He's just. Hmm. Yeah. So so what's Hobbit. your third? Um, see, here's the thing. Okay. I totally had in mind. All right. But then I got excited about other stuff. Okay. And so. Um, I'm I have gonna... a cheat fourth one if you want more time to think. Oh, yeah? We haven't I talked was, about Doctor I, Strange. True, we haven't talked about the true. magic in this. He was not Mephisto. He was not Mephisto. Thank goodness. I was I was worried that you know something was to that. They do a really fun balance of magic and science in this movie. And and I think they, they get the inherent silliness of it, but they lean into it and they take it seriously. That scene where he is dragging Tom Holland through the mirror dimension visually – was just I I didn't even didn't even want to blink because it was it was just a treat for the eyes. I think I have a third one. Let's hear it because that reminded me uh, not of what I originally had, but another complaint a lot of people have about Tom Holland's Spider Man is how he doesn't show off his smarts as mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know he made web shooters, but you never see it mm-hmm. like he did with Andrew. They really doubled down on his intelligence <sighs> yeah, they with did. the geometry and then making yeah. the devices and everything. Sure, he had the yep. help, but he had to have the idea. To get it going, and yeah. you know, it, they really have made a completely rounded Peter yeah. Parker now. Well, and I love that the and we we you know just a little bit of a cheat too. We talked about this when we went to lunch after the movie before we're recording, but they really lean into the things people have hated in other movies. Oh yeah, <laughs> I love that they do that. They're like, we recognize that you hate it. That's valid. We're gonna fix it for you. I can almost imagine just 
Kevin Feige smirking in the yep. corner, like, <laughs> yep. see what we did there. Because see? because that's another moment. Oh, you you think oh. this kid isn't smart? We'll give you entire plot lines where this kid is nothing but smart, where he's nothing but an inventor, where you get to see those character elements. And and I love that, you know, I think in, in our current culture, we get so hung up on what a movie delivers to us right now that we forget that these are a series of movies and that there's plenty to do in the future. And so instead of getting disappointed that something isn't there right now, what if we were just patient and we enjoyed <laughs> yeah. when it finally came along? Like the spider sense. I remember it being a huge complaint in Homecoming uh-huh. that this there's nothing with it? the spider sense. Well, he's young. He's underdeveloped. He got now. Up and he didn't catch it, Kenny. Yeah, I know. And they play on I that, know. too. Yeah, yeah. With, with um, yeah. Poking Andrew, fun at audiences. Yeah, like, like he, he doesn't catch the bread because why would he? It's bread. Why it's was bread. that a threat? Uh, but but just the idea of, oh, we're doing something here that takes more than one movie. We're taking our time to actually develop the spider sense. We're not just going to throw it at you. We're going to make it mean something. The spider sense in this movie is the source of laughs, uh, great character moments, drama, uh, reveals. They use the spider sense in so many different ways in this, especially once all three are together. They just play with the fact that these these three Spider-Men. They can be an amazing team because of it. Yes. Yeah. They just know what's oh, – yeah. Yeah. My, my favorite scene, uh, the introduction to it was definitely him on the bridge. But the scene where he's with the four different uh, villains, Octavius, Osborne, Dylan, and Marco – and um, <clears throat> he just he's getting that it's going off like something bad is happening at first. I think it's uh, in reference to JJJ being outside, yeah. maybe, you know, threatening his safety there. But no, no, there's, there's that reveal of no, I've been pretending and that's sorry. I've been pretending to be good um, uh, Osborne, you know. Yeah. And that's so in character for him, too. Yep. He did it literally at the end of uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 1. Yeah. He pretended, wait, Peter, it's me. It's me. It's it's Harry's dad. Yeah. He did that. Well, he does it again. And, and there's so much of this where it, it does so many different things where it sticks with, even though characters are changing that are coming in from other movie universes, they are still staying true to who they were. The fundamentals, the very foundations yep. of their inherent uh, fears and yep. desires are still exactly the same. And Electro is probably the biggest difference mm-hmm. from where he was in Amazing Spider-Man 2 to this. They give you a line or two dialogue to explain why he looks different, why his powers are different. Just enough to go on. <laughs> but then they they really sell the idea of because of the power, the changes you're seeing in this guy make sense. And I appreciated that. I love um, um, Doc Ock's comment about, wait a second... You had um, a comb over and yeah, yeah. your teeth had a gap. What happened? Yeah. Oh, Did there's, you get a makeover? There's nothing from the old movies that they let go. They reference no, it. Was, it um, sorry, they, it was Kurt Connors. Whoever it was, they go directly to it, though. They always – they are not in any way pretending or denying that the flaws of previous movies aren't there. And it's perfect. They set it up perfectly. Um, a lot of people would complain about – Fan service, too much fan service in movies. I'm sure you've mm-hmm. heard about that. But the way that they do it, I don't think it can really get complaints because what do you expect? Yeah. You expect Octavius and Osborne to meet up and not say anything to each other like, wait a second, you died. What what yeah. happened there? Yeah. It's, I mean, it just sets... Oh. Everything is logical <laughs> because these characters exist as real people in this movie. 
And I think that's that's the final kind of exclamation point I want to put on this is I believed in every one of these characters. And these characters were not all characters I enjoyed in other movies. Um, and, and somehow by the end of this movie, I was happy they were all there. And I felt they all served their purpose. And I thought they were they were really well written. I have a feeling you're mostly pointing to Electro there. Yeah, yeah. Mostly. I mean, mostly pretty much Electro, all the other ones were but just great. I'm, but... I'm one of the few. See, <clears throat> I, I never liked Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin. I thought he was a cartoon. Uh, early back in when Spider-Man first came out, I was one of the few that just like, I don't like this movie. You can't hear me right now because my jaw is dropped. I know. I, know. I, I wow. did not like it. <laughs> I love Willem Dafoe. But but the whole Sam Raimi, especially that first movie, it to me it was such a, a, a an episode of an animated series. It was just too uh, Tim Burton, Batman kind of cartoony. But that's, that's pretty much the entire series there. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I really was nervous about that going into this. And just, I, I'm actually anxious to go back to those movies now. Because you don't want to be disappointed. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's another thing. I, I think the MCU really does a good job of making you appreciate things. They've done it with Age of Ultron. They're doing it right now with Hawkeye. Things that people have either underappreciated or criticized. They they go back and they say, okay, let's, let's give that a little bit of a do-over and help you to understand what we were going for and why this character is great. And as, honestly, thinking now, as cartoony as Raimi's trilogy was Mm -hmm. it was more silver age cartoony yeah yeah. not just ridiculous straightforward good and evil golden age it was that dark but still like the background is cartoony it just it bordered on camp for me and and you have to remember at my age at the time this is when the crow and blade and x-men these very dark like let's put them in black leather and make this as serious (laughs) as possible suddenly along comes raimi doing stuff that now in retrospect, was very ahead of its time. The MCU now is very colorful and very yeah. comic And accurate. that's why I'm sure Defoe is so much better in yeah. this movie for you because he yeah. really, oh, man, I just can't get over how perfectly he fits into this, both with the cartoonist of him, like we just yeah. mentioned, and how he just interacts with yeah. Peter. And, yeah. oh, so man. so that's that's kind of the end <laughs> of our, we'll put a, a spoiler. We went a little done. over three, but. We you did. Know. If you're just getting to us now in the timestamp, uh, we revealed that Iron Man comes back to life. That's right. And that uh, Thanos uh, becomes a good guy. Yeah, Thanos um, comes back. He's a good guy. Star Star Lord comes. You know, Star Lord goes just full transgender. He's Star- a woman now. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, it's just Adam lots Warlock of, is actually silver. Yeah, yeah. Big lots of twist. lots of crazy stuff happens. Um, so yeah, that's that's what you missed in that spoiler section. Uh, but ultimately, uh, even if you have some doubts or you're nervous about Spider-Man No Way Home, go see this movie. Clint, oh if you're listening to this, I'm coming for you. Hey, Clint. Because, me, Clint, me. you have to watch this movie. I know you're tired of the MCU, but this is this is a cut above. It's beyond the MCU. This, this really. really is a cut above. I don't above. want to overhype it because you might get disappointed. I, don't I, I, just, I don't care. Clint. Honestly, I'm so excited. If somebody <laughs> is not excited by this movie, I they feel sad die. for them. I, I, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I genuinely, I feel sad. I, re, I, I suddenly understand what it's like on the other side when somebody just loves the Transformers movies or loves Fast <laughs> and Furious but, and they don't understand why see, I don't like is, them. This is objectively well put together maybe but but again we talked about at lunch maybe when you look at this on the surface this is you know a right. wizard and a multiverse and a guy who shoots webs and it's it's silly and on it, its surface you know, i guess you can never really trust your own mind huh? no no you can't so schizophrenia. uh enough spider talk <laughs> let's get into uh the two movies that you were assigned and then at right. the end we'll talk about uh, dune again but let's start with uh, 
I yep. am feeling the Revenant. Let's, okay, they both kind of fit yeah. tonally. Let's um, let's start with the Revenant. Uh, the Revenant is a movie about a man played by Leonardo DiCaprio who is wronged by a man played by Tom Hardy uh, in in the frontier in the wilderness. Uh, he is attacked by a bear. He's left for dead. His son has died. He has to claw his way back to life. And the only thing on his mind is to track down the person who has wronged him, the person who killed his son, and exact vengeance. Can I do a little spoiler thing for No Way Home real quick? I know we just got out of it. Sure. Funny to me. Okay. So this movie, Tom Hardy, also featured in No Way Home. The next movie, Grand Budapest, William Dafoe, also featured in No Way Home. Crazy, right? It's crazy. So... Uh, let's get into The Revenant. Anthony, what did you think of The Revenant? I want to preface. Okay. I actually, so these last two episodes, I've had my doubts about one of the movies in each one. Okay. But every single one this week (laughs) or month is just, oh my gosh, I love it. I love it all. It's just, they're so different. Oh, 100%. But they're perfectly different. It's amazing that you put them together like this because it's just seeing them, especially put together, shows how different they are. And then I can appreciate them delving that deep into their tones that much. This is this is a brutal. Oh my god! Yeah, very hyper realistic. I can't imagine you laughing experience. at him getting mauled by the bear. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. You laugh at I, that stuff. You psychopath. I did, but it's it's that you're so shocked that what you're seeing looks real, and there's a laugh because you know it's not. It drags on, but it really it, does. It drags on perfectly. He, he they... tries to crawl away and it comes back. Oh my god! He tries to fake dead. It comes back. And you all of a sudden. <sighs> You're 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 trying to crawl away. Yep. <laughs> like, yep. It's 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 the scariest not horror genre movie I've ever watched. Yeah. It it it's it's uh, it's it's gross and it's it's just it's terrifying <laughs> and it's what's what's the word for just totally real. Yeah, I like I think you use visceral. Visceral, yeah. unnerving, disturbing. And and that's kind of what I want to focus I sound on with like this a movie. Right now. It's okay. <laughs> it's I... it's a tough movie to watch. Oh my god, yeah. I was on the edge of my seat for half of that movie. But what I want to talk about is the power of cinematography. Cinematography is is kind of the art of a movie, how a movie looks. And and what I want you to kind of think about and maybe talk about is you've got these awful, awful visuals. You have things that you absolutely want to look away from. You mm. have things that nobody should want to see. And even for me, when I'm watching this movie, I want to close my eyes. There, There's enough real about it that there are triggers in your brain that just want you get away. to yeah, my fight, fight or flight. flight. Whoa, yeah, exactly. Jinx. There you go. And so, but at the same time, the cinematography is gorgeous. The vistas and, and, oh and the filming and the framing and all of the things that go into making up what you're seeing on screen are objectively beautiful. But they're dealing with these very subjective, ugly things. What what is is that something when you first watch a movie like this that you are aware of? Or is it something that that you kind of come to understand as you go? Um, I didn't think about it okay. when watching it quite at all um there's that shot that 
zoomed out shot of the tundra-ish <laughs> area, and I took note of that. I thought, man, that's beautiful for such a dark, disturbing movie. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't really consider the actual... Well, I mean, sometimes I do, but for this one, I, I couldn't. I was a little too distracted by okay. you know, being mauled by a bear, being... What is it? Thrown off a was he thrown off a cliff? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he yep. was. Thrown oh, off a he cliff. dives into a dead horse. He, yeah. uh, there, there's, there's so many different, uh, just kind of stomach turning moments. Right. And you're really tough skinned to that. Yeah, I guess because you watch like '80s, '90s horror stuff, huh? It's just watching so many movies. After you've okay. watched so many movies, they stop. It really takes something. Uh, kind of above and beyond to to get you at a certain level because there is a certain level of desensitization. Right. And I have a question for you since okay. you're always asking the questions. What was, because it's fascinating to me that you're at all disturbed, what was the most disturbing moment for you all in all? The the moment where uh, he is laying there and deciding whether he's going to die or not. Normally, you don't see a moment in a movie where a character has to make the decision as to whether it's worth living at that level. He is uh, so stripped down, so ripped apart. Uh, he's, you can only imagine the level of pain and anguish uh, physically he's in. Then on top of that, you add in the fact that he's lost this boy that's dear to him. And there is the one, only the only thing. And, and there's this one human being that is responsible. And so in that moment, he's having to decide, is it worth uh, exacting revenge? Is it worth all I'm going to have to go through to, to go through with that? Or, or is this just too much? Do I need to let go? Because I don't have anything to live for anyway other than this idea of vengeance. And, and that, that idea is, is – I've, I've always been disturbed by what happens when your body is dying. Like not when it dies but when you know it's going because people will hang on. People will rally. People will work, work their way and, and kind of will themselves to live. Or, or to life or to continue living. And then other people will just sort of, you know, I I just have to let go. And and that has always really disturbed me. And this is a, a really, it's just a very visual way of seeing that happen. Of course, none of the gross in-your-face moments no. disturb you. It's, of course it wouldn't. I, no. I don't know what I expected, really. <laughs> um, prob- well, and that's where the beauty comes from for me because – what what you'll notice, especially if you watch this again, is after he makes that decision, before that, it's a very murky, cloudy, rainy, uh, just, just everything about it is very oppressive and bleak. After he makes that decision, and it comes very slowly, there are moments where uh, when he crawls out of the, the dead horse, you're yeah. focused on the dead horse, but he's coming out in the morning. It's almost like he's being born out of this womb, and he's seeing this just beautiful, uh, just just landscape in front of him. He's seeing like all of nature uh, at its at its glory in front of him, and and there are just these moments where he's he's realizing that that life has beauty in it. He can't see it; all he's consumed with is vengeance. But, but red. yeah, but life has all of this that it's surrounding him with, and and Iniratu just just goes to such lengths to really showcase uh, the world that that he's surviving. Is that how you pronounce the last name? Yes, uh, and the the beauty and the the just the despair of the natural world, because that's really what this is. It's man against man, but really for most of the movie, it's man against nature, 
and and it's it's this idea of the duality of nature. You could almost argue that Tom Hardy's character, what's his name? I can't remember. Me neither. I hate him that much. <laughs> yeah, um, he's, he's, he's an awful almost human. Just a force of nature, and the way yeah. that he is just pure evil. Like John you, Fitzgerald. John Fitzgerald. That's yeah. right. Yeah. What do you? What is he living for, really? I mean, yeah. he's just yeah. he's he's just everything you you can despise so easily. He's a um, predator. He's he's an animal. He's he's not a full man. And that's why he's been surviving so yeah. long. Yeah. Yeah. In this in this crazy wilderness and everything. But then he picks a fight with the mother bear, you know, and doesn't turn out well. Actually, no. both of them technically do. But you know what I meant. I was being metaphorical there. Yeah. By the way, at a horse, I thought I smelled bad on the outside. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guarantee you every Star Wars fan in that moment just like, seen this scene before. Yeah, nothing to me yeah. really is. Yeah. A little chunkier. I mean, honestly, I wasn't look like rice, but... very disturbed, because yeah. probably because of that. I yeah, mean, I've grown up watching... Luke be shoved into a tauntaun. Yeah, and I watched The Boys, too, and there's a similar scene with the whale. Yeah. Whenever they, yeah. So something about this, by the way. Um, I really you, – you tell me not to watch trailers. Mm-hmm. You tell me not to read the backs of these cases. Mm-hmm. And so I go in blind, mm-hmm. and I go in blind to this movie. I'm saying, oh, it's it's quite, it's quite a uh, post-revolutionary war frontier kind of stuff. And then someone gets shot in the neck with an arrow, and it looks very, <laughs> very real. Yeah. And I'm like – what the hell is going on? Uh, you know, it's one of the movies, it's shocking. It's not one I'm assigning you this week, but you're going to watch Children of Men. Okay. And this is from Alfonso Cuarón, who did Gravity, which I believe you watched. That's one I haven't watched it, but I've seen the trailer. I thought you had. Okay. I wish I had. Um, but Children of Men, there's an amazing iconic shot in it where he does, it's almost like in episode three of Hawkeye, that revolving car shot as they're driving. That's actually an homage to what he does in Children of Men. Hmm. Inaratu does a very similar thing here when that attack happens early on in The Revenant. It's this very mm-hmm. long tracking shot. Oh, right, right, long takes, yeah. And and it's beautiful. It, at any point, if you pause the frame, you're seeing a painting. Yes. But there's so much motion, and, and to have the, uh, the bravery the and the confidence to film such a long take like that and to trust your audience and to trust your blocking and to trust that they're going to understand not just what's happening, but but to be able to see the beauty and the horror of it. That it's it's that beauty and horror that that so resonates with me in this movie. And here's what I really love, I've come to know in movies. I really like it when people feel like very, very real people and not just the people, yeah. but even the world. Um and so what I really loved here was the fact that no one was really a bad guy. There was some people that were more jerks than others, but, you know, everyone had their own independent motivations, even down to the Native Americans. Um, you kind of hate them at the start because they're just killing these people seemingly for no reason, but you come to find yeah. hide leather. They're trying to live too, and they have their own grudges against uh, white people, and these white people have their own, you know, fear of them even, and it's just... Well, and that's it's real. In it's modern so movies, I think real. I think we're getting such a good handle mm. on. And No Way Home is a perfect example of this. The idea that if you really want your villains to resonate and you want your movie to have power, even in that conflict, give your villains reasonable motives, uh, where they don't. And and it's nothing new. They've been doing it in movies for a long time. But the old timey mustache twirling villain. <sighs> 
is mm, just I'm evil. Yes, be evil. It's, it's a thing of the past, and the MCU still pops it up sometime. DC movies still pop it up, like Dark Very Seed, often. or Dark Side. <laughs> sorry, Dark Side is just fully a I am an evil entity. But there even is... but his equivalent, they have a lot of copycats between yeah. the two. That's just yeah. a fact. Even in Marvel, they have Thanos, and yeah. originally he's kind of that way. But yep. even so, in even in the comics, yeah. he has some motivation. If not a stupid one, but what do you expect an all-powerful yeah. Titan to do when yeah. you know he has all that power? He wants to please death, and then in the MCU, of course, he's just a very twisted, moral man on a mission. Yeah, he has almost like in Seven, he has a moral mission, but he's he's just yeah. coming from <laughs> such an odd perspective that it's it's inherently evil. But to him, John Doe is Thanos confirmed. Yes. But but to Thanos, to John Doe, they're on a righteous mission. It's only from other perspectives and that people think that they're evil. You know, it's because they have actual backstory, yeah. assumedly. Like you don't see it, but you know there's no re- there's no way that someone thinks this is better than some other alternative and yeah. they haven't had a traumatic past. Yeah. And so now think of No Way Home's yeah. villains. Even even the most evil, they're really just guys suffering from mental illness. Now and go they make to a lot something of pointing fingers at yeah, that too. Yeah. And and now look at the Revenant. Fitzgerald isn't evil. He's greedy, yes. He is opportunistic. He's racist. He's things <laughs> we've come to accept as being extensions of somebody that's evil. But in his world, you know, it's it's dog eat dog. It's mm-hmm. it's every man for himself. It's it's uh, you know, the strongest survive. And if I can survive and get a leg up and take out an enemy, and that is why a genuine, very real and very common sure. worldview. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I'm not going to get political. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But you take something like that and now you wrap it in something that artistically is beautiful. I don't even know if I have an answer as to why filmmakers do this. I know it resonates and I, I so respect filmmakers that pull it off. But there is something about presenting something awful in a way that is attractive mm-hmm. that causes, I think, the mind to reflect on it at a deeper level. Because if you just see something evil and ugly and your reaction is just to look away, you don't spend time thinking about it. But now you take something evil and awful and you present it in an artful way. Now your mind has a way to sit there and ruminate on it and think about it and mull it over. Because your mind knows what you think is good and evil already. It already knows that. But if you add just that one more layer of depth to it, then it says – Wait, I've kind of done that before. Yeah. I've kind of felt that way before. I've kind of thought about that before. It's not just that good and evil that I know. It's it's something kind of, it's something kind of something else, you know. Yeah. And and that's why I attached Grand Budapest Hotel to this. <laughs> let's let's switch over and talk to Grand Budapest Hotel. This is a movie that is not The Revenant. It is, I, I hope your experience with this was laugh out loud. <laughs> because this is a, a ridiculous, sometimes yeah, hilarious no, I was, film. I was just terrified during this. I couldn't get my mind to, I was just scared the whole, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> tell, no, me, I, tell me about your initial reaction, then I'll tell you about why I paired these together. What the heck? 
what should I, you know, like, what, it's kind of weird pairing, to be honest. Um, But I honestly, my connection I made was um, something that I noticed actually in the Grand Boutist Hotel, but not the Revenant, is how actually every frame actually looks like a painting. Yeah. It uses, like, um, geometry and nature and, you know, even just characters looking at each other on, like, a perfect Mm -hmm. parallel it all looks like paintings. It's all just art. It's just And it's beautiful. it's very different because The Revenant is almost impressionistic where you get it's it's very well composed, but it doesn't have the symmetry of a frame from a Wes Anderson movie. Wes Anderson, there's a lot of just right, right. angles and dead on shots geometry, and yeah. symmetry and geometry and yeah. all these things. Those things are present. They're much more nuanced in a frame of the Revenant, in the cinematography of the Revenant. But you're you're getting the sense, you can feel it when you watch a movie, if somebody has a handle on exactly what they're presenting to you. And these are two films that almost in every frame, they know exactly what they want you to see. They know exactly what they want you to look at. They know exactly what you want to notice in the background. They, they know exactly how to pair story with what they're presenting to you through a visual medium. And, and they do it in a way that makes you feel very specific emotions. There's a great scene in Grand Budapest where everything's comical, everything's light, everything's funny. Suddenly somebody's being murdered, and as they're being pulled back, <laughs> a door slams yeah. on their hand and their fingers fall off. And I think that was the first scene mm-hmm. that was that violent. Yeah. And that was a shocker because yeah. so far it's a very colorful movie. Oh, yeah. Like very just <laughs> and not even because there's a difference, right? There's colorful as in natural colors that just, mm-hmm. you know, they're there and they, they feel real. But there's color that is purposely put there to sort of brighten each other. Yeah. And that's what this movie uh, particularly does. <clears throat> and so to see, um, what's his name? The actor. Wes Anderson or? The actor that got uh, his Ralph fingers. Fien- oh, uh, Jeff um, Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, to see his fingers come off. That was a little, uh, wow. Yeah. And it's played so comedically. Yeah. It's just, and it's um, it's sort of moments like that that used to make me really sick. It kind of just surprised me here. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I told you way long ago, probably three years ago now, uh, after I watched the first season of The Boys, like, this is such a dark show. It's so dark. Everything's dark. Everything's depressing. You're like, what? It's so funny. Yeah. And it's the, like, that's, that's kind of the main difference between us, I think. I just take things a little more seriously in that aspect. And then... They pulled the head out of the box. Yep. And I was thinking, man, seven. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> you did that on purpose, didn't you? A little bit. Ah. Not, not to that level. Not but that was that, that was um, huge shocker. Yeah. That was actually, that was very, very shocking. One A lot of, the, of this was. One of the things that fascinate me, and, and certainly about both of these films, one of the things that fascinate me with great films in general is you have to remember that while you usually have a director who is the the final uh, visual artist. He is the one responsible for what the ultimate vision is going to be, he or she. You also have this massive team of people. You have a cinematographer who's responsible for uh, you know, what's coming into the camera and the frame. You have the sound designers. You have uh, the actors. You have, you have all of these very disparate elements that you know somebody, one person or a team, basically has to bring together and make something cohesive. It's no wonder there's so many movies that don't quite work. 
you know how you've watched movies before and you're just like, I don't know what it is, or maybe I can point to a scene, but I don't know why. It just didn't click. When we were talking about No Way Home, everything clicked. Why? Yeah. Because for whatever reason, everybody that was on that set understood the vision and, and see, followed and knew what their part was. I think a big part of that is I think the people that work on those movies genuinely love them. Yeah. I think the people that are hired are mostly comic book fans. Yeah. And I think they really, really, really just actually put love into it. I know that's a common yeah. thing to say. Like someone put love into this movie, but no, it's, it's just people, like you like can see that thousands. in any job. Yeah, you can see that in any job. If you go to a restaurant, you can tell when a waitress – not that she doesn't or he doesn't have dreams to not be a waiter or waitress, but you can tell when somebody enjoys helping people or or waiting mm-hmm. tables or something. There's a big difference. You can tell whether it's just something to get them by or something yep. that gets them by and kind of satisfies yeah. whatever goals they have yeah. a little bit. But and so and and I think that's <clears throat> really with Wes Anderson. You can see how he has this stable of actors that keep coming back and wanting to work with <laughs> Jason him. Jason Schwartzman was in there for a hot yeah, second. He was the new. He was the the guy behind the counter, yeah. the, uh, the desk clerk or whatever. He was the new one of those. That yeah. was fun. But but it's something where you know that Wes Anderson must run a set where everybody just loves being on a Wes Anderson <laughs> set. Everybody respects his vision. Everybody understands his vision. Everybody knows their part. And I would imagine everybody feels appreciated because he goes around with the same people. That's probably why he does that to begin with because he only probably hires people that share the same love of art. Um, And not that I've watched many Quentin Tarantino movies, Mm -hmm. just Inglorious Bastards and not it, (laughs) Uh, but the sort of – Still lighthearted, but still comedic, and you know, but also there's gore thrown in there. It mm-hmm. very much reminded me of Inglorious Bastards in that way. Uh, Grand Budapest did well, and that's they're they're displaying violence in two different ways, which is very realistic to the characters. So in Revenant, you have a character that's out in the wilderness, and these these men are used to violence. They are used to seeing seeing the the brutality of nature right. on display. And so it's much more present in their world. And you as the viewer are less surprised by it. There might be a surprise here or there. You mentioned the arrow. Yeah. But and, that just um, starts a scene that's far more horrific than that initial arrow. The arrow is just the thing that jars you into realizing, oh, no, there's danger. Uh, I, I think that has more impact than the visual itself. And the way that they display the Native Americans in that scene, yep. just like ghosts, almost yep. like Revenants. Yeah. Oh, look what you did. <laughs> oh, but in that case, you're dealing with characters in the wilderness, in the middle of, of nature that are used to all of this stuff. And so what you see through that artistic vision matches. You go to Grand Budapest Hotel. What do you have? You have these very elite, prissy, <clears throat> uh, well-off, uh, even, even the employees in this hotel think of themselves as a higher class than yeah. other people. And so in their world, when violence happens, it's shocking. And it's it's not characteristic of what they're used to. Yeah. And so you as the audience member are invited into that process too. And so the violence shocks you as well. Oh, I love it. I, I think yeah. it's, I don't know if it's my favorite movie that I've watched so far. I think that's Seven. <laughs> But it's definitely like almost tied. Revenant or Grand Budapest? A Grand Budapest. Okay. I honestly I love it that much. Yeah. Um. The the tone is just it's perfect for me. I love the way they talk. Yeah. The way they talk is just so. 
tracks. Yeah. It's like so specific and so accurate and stuff. And they, uh, I forget the characters' names, uh, the main two. I forget as well, but they're very literal. Yeah. Everything is serious and they take everything and they're seriously. Like, they're the, they're the, the, dynamic, the dynamic duo that I, I didn't know that I, I really needed. Yeah. I really yeah. do. I, uh, M. Gustav I is Ralph Fiennes' character. Um, mm. I'm trying to remember what the lobby boy's name is in the movie. But go on. But yeah, um, I just, I can't get enough of them. Yeah. And Gustav keeps surprising me too. Like, I didn't expect him to be not racist. Yeah. And then it turns out that he's a lobby boy or he was himself and, you know, he surpassed him. And the lobby boy's name is Zero. Now, did you notice that it's Flash Thompson? It's Flash Thompson from the Spider Man movie. Oh, and he's younger. Yep. Oh. Yeah, exact same actor, Tony Revolori. Uh, he's he's actually, I know he gets such a small part in the Spider-Man movies and he's usually the butt of jokes. He's actually a really good actor. <laughs> um, he's, 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 a, he's one to watch. Um, he I does think. bit parts. He's a character actor, but yeah, uh, he's, he's fantastic. <laughs> I wouldn't have noticed because whenever you go back to present day, yep. there's some other dude playing him, very obviously, this yeah. older guy. F. Murray Abraham, yeah. Like, ah, oh, man. Yep, yep. it's, oh, it's I, Flash Thompson with a little pencil mustache. Is he in... Um, a lot of was no Anderson? that no. was that was his first what one. What about Gustav? He, uh, I don't think I saw him in. Trying to remember, no, he's not in Rushmore. I feel like he pops up in something else, but is not coming to me. Okay. Um, but uh, Wes Anderson's latest French Dispatch, which Clint and I are about to talk about, everybody pops it? up in that thing. <sighs> I want to watch it. There's everybody pops I love up. It. When he says, "I okay," so before we watched any Wes Anderson movies, I mm-hmm. kept seeing trailers for. I'm like. Man, what's uh, what's that? It looks all old timey. And <laughs> yeah. um, after watching, I just I'm so excited. Like, yeah. it's, I'll let it's... you watch it. Um, <sighs> that's Ooh. so. In the movie, he only shows up uh, in French Dispatch. He only shows up for two minutes. In one of the the, it's it's essentially this newspaper, and they're writing these three stories, and you get to see the three stories. And in the first one, it's Benicio del Toro as this insane man who has murdered people and he's locked away in a prison and he just happens to be an incredible artist and you get one little three minute flashback to when he was a kid and it's played by tony revelori uh, who plays zero and he's growling and he's got wild hair and it's just it's this moment where he just showed up to do this little two minute black and white yeah i'll growl with the camera and that's it uh and so much in french dispatch is just people showing up who are way too famous to be showing up to spend three minutes that's, on That's camera. Grand Budapest too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But but again, that goes back to, so here you have this director who is not only connecting with his cast, he's not only connecting with his crew, he's not only creating a cohesive vision, he or she, uh, but in the case of Wes Anderson, he's also connecting to you, the audience, and inviting you into that process. And he's creating such a cohesive tone and vision, even when that tone shifts, that he's inviting you along even if something is horrific or even if something is scary. Uh, and, and then you take Inaratu, wildly different directors, but they're accomplishing the same thing because yeah. they understand how to work with their team and they understand how to communicate to you, the viewer, uh, to share in that experience. And that's why you get connection to different characters. 
because you you are not just watching a story that engages you, No Way Home. You are being invited into emotions that you understand. So is French Dispatch, sorry, I just keep no, thinking about the ahead. advertisement. Is um is it both black and white and color? So the because color I've... sequences are what happens in the present, essentially, mm. with this newspaper as their, their, or this magazine as they're creating their last issue. Mm. And then the black and white segments are the three stories that the writers at the <laughs> magazine oh, are writing. That's cool. And so you almost get four films in this. You get the newspaper, or excuse me, I keep saying newspaper. You get the magazine putting together their last issue, and then you get these three anthology-style mini-movies that are completely different, like different actors. I do. I know. Um, um, and and so I don't. I don't. It does not work as well as Grand Budapest, but it's not meant to. It's a very different kind of film. It's not a, a traditional narrative film. So for some reason, one of the Last times that I watched the one trailer where it starts off with um, our story starts at Burger of Goodman. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I thought, wait, is this really that movie that I saw? Or is this like an advertisement for perfume? Or something? It really felt like, <laughs> what's going yeah. on here? Yeah. I, don't, I don't know why. I just really felt like I should mention that. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so, so of the directors you've watched so far, who is the, the one director that you want to see more movies from? Wes Anderson. Really? No hesitation. <sighs> Because That's so exciting to me. It's like uh, I, I've liked the darkness of David Fincher. Mm-hmm. It really feeds that edgy side of me. <laughs> but I just—he's such a creative guy, Wes Henderson. Mm-hmm. He's just—he he knows what he wants. He probably lives by that quote by Stan Lee: um, "If you have an idea and you think it's good, don't let anyone tell yeah. you that it's not." Well, and that's what's so interesting because Clint and I have already kind of pre-talked about French Dispatch, and we both love it and don't love it. And and that's okay. It's one of those moments where even Wes Anderson, let's say French Dispatches is worst, which it is not. Even Wes Anderson at his worst is still operating at such a higher level of quality than most of the filmmakers. And that's out just there. his style. Yeah. Like it, his foundation, his style is just so. I I don't even know. Like I would say unique, mm-hmm. and it is. But I don't know if that's what makes it so so enjoyable. Wes or Anderson's one where he's enlightened. <laughs> yeah, you can you can watch one small clip and know instantly it's a Wes Anderson movie. I mean, it just like you were saying the writing, the dialogue style, the visuals. It's it's so unique to him. Even even with Revenant, if I I would watch something like that and I could take a guess at maybe five or six directors, and I, I Inaratu would probably be in there. Uh, but with Wes Anderson, like. Who else would you look at any scene from Grand Budapest and think that that came from? You know, it's just that's Wes Anderson. And and that's what's cool. Like even when uh, a Wes Anderson or an Edgar Wright or a David Fincher, even when they deliver a movie that you're not a big fan of, it's a different experience because you're just like, well, they'll get me the next time. It's always like a kid's storybook. Mm-hmm. Every time. And that's how you tell because, you know, even though I was trying to think of it because – his movies, mm-hmm. although they share the same style, we can say on a more metaphorical way, right? They're always different. Mm-hmm. It's always a different setting. It's, of course, you know, same actors a lot, but um, different colors, different time period, different everything, mm-hmm. right? But the one thing about it is it always feels like a storybook. Mm-hmm. It always just... <sighs> and if you notice, it usually has at least one, <clears throat> if not multiple, young protagonists. It's always children who are behaving like adults 
are usually the main characters or close to the main character. So you think Wes Anderson has childhood trauma then? I do. I think is and, and oh. when you listen to him as he was growing up, he was just like Max Fisher, he was operating at a different level. He was writing things that were beyond his years. And people would try to peg him as a kid, but he's thinking at a much different level. And so what fascinates him, people like Zero, this boy who so desperately wants to be a man that he is going to go out of his way to be everything he can to be a man in the eyes of M. Gustav. And even down to like the yep, uh, even the mustache. mustache. That's just he has the trappings. He has to bring everything to. I am not a child, and I'm and not going to let people think of me. Even that way. Gustav does that. Mm-hmm. Even he has this yearning to like be taken seriously yep. because he was once that lullaby boy too. He's yep. still like you. You you look at it on the surface level. He wants perfume after he gets out of prison. What a what a rich pretentious guy, right? But no, yeah. no. It's just that he has a deep deep insecurity about people taking him seriously needs to be taken seriously. And I bet that's why he speaks so specifically. His standards aren't about his pride. His standards are about addressing that old, old, old insecurity and wanting to be seen a certain way because he never wants to go back to being that helpless boy before he was a lobby boy who, (laughs) you know, was not something in the world or was not important to people. He's just... The, and it's always the ambition mm-hmm. of um, Anderson characters. Yeah. Every single person has a deep ambition. There's never really a lazy character, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. I don't know why I just said that. It just came to That's mind. Okay. It makes total sense. <laughs> For me, Rushmore and Grand <clears throat> Budapest are his best. Yeah. Uh, and I love, I think, I think all but two of his movies. And those two I like uh, mm. very much. I just, I'm not in love with them. Um, but especially once we get to his stop motion animation stuff, I can't wait for you to watch Fantastic, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Fox and uh, Isle of Dogs. Isle of Dogs you will especially love because it is so entrenched in Japanese culture and the Japanese language. And I don't things. know what you're talking it's, about, Kenny. I don't know anything about Japanese culture at all. It's not my thing, really. I mean, <laughs> not all right. So but, you know, uh, Revenant, you would recommend then. Absolutely. And I, Grand Budapest. Maybe not if you're a mm-hmm. super sensitive person for The Revenant, <laughs> yeah. uh, but maybe it'll make you a tough person. I don't yeah. know. You'll notice a lot of these movies I assign you are things that I think you'll enjoy. We'll eventually get away from that. Here, I think <laughs> in three weeks, I'm going to start where at least one of your movies are challenging and that you may – these I'm pretty confident you're going to enjoy. Some of the ones coming up, mm. I specifically want to see like what your – what are what are the the boundaries and the limits of your taste? Like where there there are these moments where you can respond to something like Wes Anderson and you know whether you like Wes Anderson or not. But then there are other films where, man, some people love them and some people hate them, and both are correct. What did we watch alongside Seven? Um, trying to remember. Was that Social Network? Yeah. No, that was the week no. before. Because they're they're oh both yeah venture. Fisher and then it was Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember what you watched with mm. Seven. It was Scott. Was it Scott Pilgrim? I'm pretty sure it was okay. Scott because, yeah, because uh, we've only have two we parts We were talking so about Worldview. And both of them. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> I'm excited for this week. Uh, before we talk about Jodorowsky's Dune, I want to oh, talk about what you're going to watch. Okay. So Jojo um, Rabbit, like I already know because I'm yes, good at Yes. Well, the, the first movie you're going to watch, and I do want you to watch these in order. Uh, okay. The first movie you're going to watch is from, uh, what year is that? Goodness. 
Oh my 90s, goodness, Fargo. You know, my friend used to live in Fargo. Really? Yeah, he actually so lived there. This is uh, the Cohen brothers. The Cohen brothers are prolific directors. They will, I think, they take a longer time to uh, fall in love with than like a Wes Anderson. But the Cohen brothers are incredible. They okay. have very specific voices. Their movies are often different, but they surround mm. different themes. A homespun um, murder story, huh? A homespun murder so story. This case. And this is also one where I'm going to uh, – this week we're going to start to talk just basics of plot. Uh, okay. So Fargo, it's just this little murder mystery movie, uh, which isn't a murder mystery. Things get out of hand. There are some fairly stupid characters. There okay. are some fairly inept characters. There are some smart characters that people think are stupid. Um, oh, and like real it, people. It, it just it's it's a crime story that is told in a very unique way, and I'm I'm very excited to see how you react to Fargo. So uh, that's the first one. Uh, the second one is Looper. Have you ever heard of Looper? Uh, today, yeah, you okay. uh, mentioned it. <laughs> Ryan Johnson uh, did this film, right. and it's with Bruce Willis and, and you Joseph Gordon-Levitt. You mentioned it first, didn't you? I did. Uh, you, uh, no. you person. Uh, but <laughs> this is a really unique time travel movie, and I don't want you to know anything about this plot other than the fact that Joseph Gordon-Levitt, with some prosthetics, is playing a young Bruce Willis. And so they are the same oh. character. This is, I think, a, a really, really well done and surprising in a lot of ways. It? Not, it's not a deep time travel oh. movie. It is a twisty time travel movie. It really mm, plays with. Play, it sets up its rules and then it has fun with them. And this is this is a great little kind of uh, futurist. That reminds movie. me. Did you watch that movie recently uh, by Batman director? Um, Matt Reeves. Uh, Batman Begins director. Oh, Christopher, Christopher Nolan. Nolan. Did you watch Tenet? His, yeah, Tenet. I did. I did. And? I don't enjoy Tenet, but I respect what he's going for. It's very ambitious, but I, I feel like he's not always interested in being clear to the audience what's happening. And I think that's to his detriment. That's the thing that you like, right? You like it whenever they don't hold your hand and try to explain everything. I to like you. when they don't hold my hand. But I don't like when they don't leave enough breadcrumbs, even upon multiple viewings, mm, to fully okay. understand what's happening. Because then I end up questioning whether they know what's happening. <laughs> and then I start asking, well, is this just style over substance? Yeah. Did they waste my time? And knowing Christopher Nolan, I'm sure you. this movie makes sense right. in his mind. Yeah. But, you know, his mind doesn't make sense. But so. <laughs> this, is, this is one where, where the thing I couldn't get past no, is they say there are these objects you can find that are going backwards in time. So at one point uh, they have stone and a bullet comes out of it into a gun as the guy reverse fires it. Well, so this ancient stone has had a bullet in it how long? Like where's the timeline <laughs> as far as how long this has been traveling Just backwards? Why is it there? Why is it there? And, and at one point early on there's this stadium where these bullets are coming out of the seats. Did a janitor never notice bullet holes in these stadium seats? Like, at what point did those appear? And, see, the and I get tripped up on is, that stuff. It's it's the question. It's always a problem with time travel. What yeah. is the true timeline? It's the yeah. grandfather paradox, right? Yeah. If if at one point that rock is normal in the yeah. original timeline, and then at one point it gets shot, and then it travels back in time. Yep. Now in that back in time, it is now mm. being shot the whole time. So can it ever be when shot? When did it start? Like yeah. yeah, and that's always a problem. And that's why uh, No Way Home has a lot of that yeah. uh, with magic and everything, but it doesn't care to explain it to you. <laughs> and I prefer that. If you're going really? to explain it to me, 
and you're going to give me a lot of detail, then it needs to be airtight because you're giving me so many details, I'm going to ask questions. That's what happens in Tenet. Mm, and they no just way home, level details. Yeah, No Way Home, Electro looks different, and he just says <laughs> the energy here is different. And I just I, – I literally shrug my shoulders, and I'm like, good enough for I me. I didn't even notice that, and I didn't even care. Yeah. Yeah, All you, I went you don't with, care because it's not sitting there for five minutes trying to tell you how it works. No, and, you know, I already knew also that these weren't going to be the exact same versions. Yeah, they yeah. mentioned that. So, you know, yeah. it's not even a big deal. Yeah. And it's that's not even a problem. With Tenet, if Christopher Nolan was just serving up all this stuff yeah. and didn't spend five minutes of screen time every 15 minutes yeah. explaining to you how it works and having and all these then, characters it's explain different it, because it'd be fine. He makes it centric, I imagine. I yeah. haven't watched it, by the way. <laughs> but I imagine he makes it front and center. They don't They don't make it front and center yeah. in No Way Home. They don't need to. At this yeah. point, you know, like you said before, the audience knows what's going on. One of your upcoming movies is Christopher <clears throat> Nolan's Inception. That's a movie where he does it correctly. He does lay out rules, but they're airtight. But the narrative is also engaging enough and you can follow it. I've heard of it. I've seen clips of it, but it's I have. It's great. But it's it. it's ambitious, but only to the point that you are capable as a intelligent audience member of following it. It loses you temporarily maybe at times, but it always brings you back on board to where you understand. So Fargo, Looper, and then finally, uh, just from, uh, I think that was 2019, this was on I Clint like and I, both of our top 10 lists. I think it was 2019, but I'm not 100%. Uh, it's Jojo Rabbit from Taika Waititi, uh, who is the director of Thor Ragnarok, and another movie you're going to watch at some point, um, which I cannot wait for you to watch that one. Hmm? What we do in the shadows? No, that one's oh, wonderful okay. too. Um, but Hunt for the Wilder People, which has Jurassic Park Sam Neill. And it's just a hilarious little romp through the New Zealand countryside. I well, um, yeah, actually, the only reason I know about Jojo Rabbit and almost mm-hmm. watched it was because of Thor Ragnarok. Okay, he, I just well, Thor, Thor Ragnarok was really coming out. Sorry, coming out. That was out Anthony whenever. stretching for yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. the Blu-ray. When I was just really starting to get an idea of what even movies were at all or yeah. what they were meant to be and so i saw this and i thought about how boring the other thor movies yeah. were and i thought that's pretty cool someone someone really made that really good yeah and yeah. so of course then i'm i know who take what to so, so so fargo looper and jojo rabbit uh not necessarily looking for any connections there just notice how these are yet three more movies three more directors who uh are, are very in control of tone what they're doing, comedy, drama. Uh, these are Something very cohesive movies. They're, they're very different. Okay. Yes. Uh, Fargo is a very dark and sometimes uh, unsettling comedy. Uh, but comedy is like you will laugh, but there are moments of horror in this thing. Uh, Looper is a much darker, more dramatic kind of sci-fi twister. And okay. Jojo Rabbit has no business being as light and fun as it is. <laughs> For What's a it movie, about again? it's it's about a kid whose uh-huh. imaginary friend is Hitler. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And um, Ooh, this will be it's, controversial. No, not at all. Surprisingly, there is no controversy. There is no controversy to it because he goes so far out of his way to not only play Hitler, to, but to make him such a a farce and a satire of 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 who he was, and and they go to such lengths to make fun of the Nazis. Uh, that there's there's not a lot of controversy there. It's it's actually it's 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 a, a warm warm apple cider of a of a of a Nazi movie. Yeah, yeah. 
And he really it's looks like strange. Hitler in there. It's weird. Yeah, he really does. Like, so those those are the three: Fargo, Looper, Jojo Rabbit. Let's get to Jodorowsky's Dune. Yes, yes. I really was excited for you to watch Jodorowsky's Dune is because it's not a film. It's a documentary about a film that never came to be. But what you'll notice, and and we can talk about a lot of other things because I do want to talk about Jodorowsky. uh, What you'll notice is compared to a Wes Anderson or to an Inaratu, he has the passion and he's able to mobilize people. But he's not able to mobilize people to the point that he can get his vision on the screen at the level he wants to. And you can see in the documentary how frustrated he is and angry he is about that. But at no point is he self-reflective enough to be able to step back and say, I want to make a nine-hour, multi-million dollar movie that, that I should not reasonably believe any studio is going to make. Uh, that's that's kind insane. of at the core. Of he's it. just crazy. He's he really man. does come across and that way. He's a delightful lunatic. It's, but and this is not any sort of negative comment about anyone. <laughs> um, but I feel like he has a stronger vision than other ones, and so he's more stubborn because yeah. he really he just has this perfected vision of his that he really just needs to see made. And so of course he doesn't compromise because he has that vision. If yeah. it's not perfect, it's not his movie. Yeah. And now, that's what I get from him. Let's let's go to an alternate reality, No Way Home style. We're in the multiverse and we are in a universe where <laughs> this movie came to be. Do you think after watching this documentary this movie would have been good, bad, bizarre? Like what do you think this movie would have been in our in our pop culture? sphere in the 1970s uh, at the time now how would we think about it what would we have thought about i think it definitely be one of those movies where it's hard to grasp at the time and everyone's thinking what's with that weird indie kind of movie over there but then now people go back and watch and all of a sudden it's become i can't think of what other movies are like this but it's become something that people really love in hindsight yeah yeah um but still i think it's very bizarre and i don't think the modern dune would happen i don't think the um first actual made one would happen either. I don't remember who made that one. That was um, David Lynch. So so you think people would have been so scared off from the entire story, it would have never gotten a... I almost wonder if, if a more serious version like uh, Villa News would have happened earlier with the mess that would have been Jodorowsky's Dune. Maybe. If you've um, not... If it would take someone really ambitious. Yeah. If you're listening and you've not seen this documentary, it's great. Um, <laughs> it's greatly confusing. It's very it's confusing. It's weird. Weird. Uh, but but he has this this tome, this book, this illustrated storyboarded yeah, version. Tome is a good word of the entire he, script. You he see it like from his this, religion. Yeah, you see from this documentary exactly what this movie would have looked like, and you can imagine what it would have been and how just out there bonkers it would have been. Although that. That first thing that he talked about, the opening long take, that mm. sounded really good to me. I really yeah. liked that idea. Yeah. Especially, it's I, was it less common or more common then? Because we have a lot of very, very cutty very movies that come between common. little, you know, less common. movements. Um, I, I believe it goes into that in the documentary. One of the really interesting parts is where it, it shows all the different movies that were clearly – borrowing yeah. from that the star like wars said, opening shot in alien 2001 and, yeah star wars wouldn't happen yeah etc etc yeah. and maybe they still would have happened 
But there are certain iconic shots and and things in those that are so straight out of this book that went to all the studios. Everybody saw this thing. Of course, it inspired people. So it didn't happen in the movie. Mm -hmm. But I think it was Legends that introduced the idea of sandworms being on Tatooine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, did George Lucas write those books? Did he read the write Dune them. books? No, 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 no. Did he write the Legends Star Wars uh, books? I don't think so, but they all drew from his. Even he was that, heavily inspired by Dune. That's even more Dune. impressive because they're just picking up on that, whoever wrote that. you know, like yeah. Frank Herbert's Dune was, was so influential, influential that it, it really uh, wormed its way into – yeah, I did that. It, just, it really wormed <laughs> its way into – You know, you're really impressing me today. <laughs> I love a good pun. Nobody else does. <laughs> what but was man. it? First, you had Strange yeah. talking about how Said, weird Cumberbatch looks yeah, like, and then yeah. amazing and yeah. worm, worm. Yeah. That's the worst one, Kenny. <laughs> so, so how do you? I, yeah. I think this movie would have had a very specific crowd in the '70s of uh, people who got really high. Yeah, and what watched did, this? What do you say? He said, um, "I want to make a movie that's like an LSD trip yeah. or marijuana trip, but without the yeah. LSD or marijuana." I, I think it would have come close. I think people would have. I think <laughs> yeah. it, it, almost like the the Pink Floyd and movies. I think it would have had a cult following. There were some things that, and okay, here's what sort of bothered me. Mm-hmm. He didn't even read it. Nope. He did not even read it. What did he have someone read it and tell him what happens? That's, he got the oh basic plot God. points, and then he just didn't care. But also, like, about what the story was. I can understand that to a degree, uh, especially with such a creative, mm-hmm. passionate person. If he reads it, it'll ruin his personal creativity. Mm-hmm. But also, man, people that read the book were disappointed. I, yeah. Like I know that now because of Hunger Games and other books like that, mm-hmm. and. Oh, yeah. People that love Dune would have hated yeah. his movie. I mean, and maybe just... that itself would have propelled a more accurate Dune, like what I assume we have now with yeah. Timothy Chalamet. And the... I, I do Is wish that more the... accurate? Yeah, I, okay. I, I do wish. Oh, it's very accurate. I, I wish the documentary had more time devoted to interviewing some of the studio heads or the decision makers of the time. I would have loved Ooh. to hear interviews with people yeah. who were – like, oh, yeah, he came in. Let me tell you from my perspective what that meeting was like. What a lunatic. Yeah, yeah. He wanted, you know, $100 million. And Into a 12-hour movie? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do wish it had more of that. I think it does a really good job of of showing kind of his passion as an artist and who he is and, and why he has such a draw. I can totally see why he ropes people in, almost cult leader style. Yeah, but, I uh, mean, like I, I think I told you earlier, it's like – the way that he talks about it is like old Nick Fury talking about how he assembled yeah. the Avengers, yeah. which hasn't happened. But, you know, like if it did, that's what it would look like. Um, <clears throat> my favorite thing was seeing the little uh, flipbook style, like little, very literally drawn animations. And they happen in modern Dune, Dune 2021. Yeah. Yeah. Um, First, the well, it's not happened yet, but it's going to happen. Everyone riding the sandworm. There wasn't one person that did, yeah. and also the insect yeah. helicopter. And so it's, I, I, it really makes you wonder how much the person that read it and then told him, I don't remember who that was, um, really told him about it. Yeah. Like, was it actually an accurate explanation? And so he still kept some accuracy, or you know. Just what feels happened? like he got the visual highlights. It was interesting seeing Villeneuve's Dune because there are things in his new adaptation that's directly from Jodorowsky's Dune. That shot oh. where H.R. Geiger 
had done the the uh, um, Harnikins or um, what is that family? The Dark. There's there's that zoom shot where it goes in on that black castle down that chasm. That's straight out of Jodorowsky's uh, storyboards. So, yeah, so and he even says that, was that wasn't question. in the book. And so <laughs> even even somebody like Villeneuve is aware of. They did not show the outside of Harkin. Yeah, Is Harkonnen, it Harkonnen? Harkonnen. Something like that. They didn't yeah. show the outside of the building, did they? I really like the idea of the building itself being like a statue of their leader, the one that levitates. Yeah. I really like that idea. And honestly, even though it's not book accurate, I mean, I guess I haven't read the book, so I wouldn't appreciate book accurate. That's such a cool idea, yeah. especially with ego. Like it's this dude is really creative. And part of me is like cringing at the idea of changing so much about a story, but also it's okay, I think, if you make up with, or you make up, uh, make it up with something even more creative, and something even more interesting and deep. And honestly, if I had watched his theoretical movie, I think I would have been more impressed. And this is all theoretical; I could mm-hmm. totally be wrong. I think I'd be more impressed by his world building than what I saw in uh, Villeneuve. Mm-hmm. Villeneuve's 2021 day. So do you think it takes more art and craft uh, to adapt something directly <clears throat> or to really just go off the reservation and and do your own thing? Like, who's the greater artist there? I know that's a super <laughs> subjective question. <laughs> yeah. But is, is Jodorowsky um, the better artist or is, or is Villeneuve? I think Jodorowsky is entirely disrespectful. Mm-hmm. But I think he is probably more creative of a person. Hmm. Uh, but I think a balance between the two is better. Probably leaning in accuracy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, take your freedoms. Uh, make a accurate, you know, the essentials are all there. Everything that might be cared about is there. Yeah. You know, the main plot, the main characters, what they're like. It's all there. But things like the visuals can be debated about. Um, yeah. The writer, what was his name of the Dune book? Oh, Frank Herbert. F- Herbert. He might describe... Uh, a room of being one certain way and it's not super specific it's specific but you can interpret that like maybe he says a room is all black but maybe it's mm. black with little dots and black with little it's as simple as that and i think that is an interesting way to both respect the source material but also expand keep mm. it familiar you can recognize what's going on and recognize that it happened in the book too but also yeah bring your own impression to it and i think that's how you keep things fresh and i definitely think you know going back to to no way home there's there's a lot of comic book there, but it's not beholden to the comic book. It's its <laughs> no, own thing. I think the other two were loosely based on one comic book story, weren't they? Homecoming this one, and Far From Home. There isn't like an exact. Uh, I don't know about no. one story, but they they hewed really closely to Mysterio and to Vulture. From Actually, the this one comics. was um, very similar to uh, whenever he talked to Mephisto. About erasing his life, yeah, and he had to sacrifice him. This one felt much more like a spiritual successor to Into the Spider Verse, the animated movie. Um, not not in a bad way. It just it felt more um, attached to that than to the comic books. I think uh, again, not in a bad way. It just it felt like oh, we really we were on to something over there. Let's figure out how to do that in live action. I don't know. And they did I, it. I appreciate oh, that. Man. But but I with can't get over it. I I kind of agree with you. I think <laughs> I think Villeneuve is a really great filmmaker. Yeah. And he can execute a vision. Um but I think Jodorowsky is probably what you would call like a visionary. I don't know that mm. he can execute. I don't I know you haven't seen his other movies. Clint likes them. I do not. El Topo El Topo and, and I something. I do not 
enjoy those movies. <laughs> uh, they're they're wild to look at. He's very obviously a visionary. He obviously has a lot to say, but I don't know that he can execute it as competently or as um, precisely as somebody like a Villeneuve. And when you're looking so, at film, what are you going for? And and some people want that. Uh, give me something that blows my mind and is a piece of art. I'm not that person necessarily. I want artistry, but I, I want, an I want idea traditional for you. too. Okay. So none of them can do it all on their own. Mm-hmm. Double directors. What do you say? Jodorowsky and Villeneuve working together and somehow they can compromise. I, say, I know they wouldn't get along, yeah, but say in theory they, they somehow could. That would be very interesting. That would be very, very interesting. So you're saying if Jodorowsky was was solely on the design end of things yeah. and and the inspiration. Creative people end. have a hard time being specific. Specific people have a hard time being creative. Combine the two, they can find a amazing balance, I think, or it can yeah. be completely worse than anything yeah. else. I just I think that's why he's never become <clears throat> much of a successful filmmaker. He's known, but he's not viable. Yeah. He's he's not successful on the level of a Spielberg or or these sorts of things because I think he doesn't know how to compromise. And it's important to be well rounded. But I think also I think more people should do duo directing. Yeah. Because I just think not everyone can do everything they want by yeah. themselves. And even if you have a whole team of people, you need someone to help with whatever you make up for. And he had no one to make up for his lack of compromise with the yeah. studios or his lack of execution. You know, The Coen brothers who did Fargo are really interesting because they are they direct all of their movies together. They're co-directors, they're brothers, but they do very different things on set. Um, and, and when you watch behind the scenes stuff, one is definitely the more technical of the brothers. One is more that is concerned with performance and, and things like that. And that's what I'm talking about. But, but they have to know what that relationship is and they have to have a relationship that works. Otherwise, I mean, they've made, I don't know how many movies at this point, incredible movies. Uh, incredible. Oh, cool. No, not, (laughs) not, not that. No, uh, but they've, they've made just wonderful movies and, um, you know, but they work as a team. And I don't know that many people could pull that off. Do you think they um, go far with their movies? Go, <laughs> go far. far go. <laughs> I see what you did. Um, but, your energy. Yeah. But that's something I, I think it's much easier when people know their place in the hierarchy. Like on a Fincher film, Fincher is very – he's a visionary. He's very – he's also a good – uh, he's able to execute, mm-hmm. but his cinematographer, I'm sure, knows his place. He knows that I do what David wants and that I have freedom and I have the ability to work within certain boundaries, but he's my boss. And I, I think the more you lose that hierarchy in art, if you're especially if you're trying to put together a film, I think you right. increase the risk of just things going off the rails. Because people don't know who to answer to or who the actual artist is. And it's like sound design. Obviously, you're an artist in what you do in sound design. But I don't think it's impossible. It's not impossible. No. And here's here's how I sort of see it. I see it in um, bars, like bars of energy if you're going up and down. Bars. I was like, like like with bartenders? Oh, yeah. No, I was thinking like. They're all drunk. But (laughs) no. So you have someone like. Fincher. Seven, I think it's a good balance of what I consider to be Jodorowsky and Villeneuve, mm-hmm. sort of, in a, in a way, in a metaphorical way. Um, but the thing is, 
he's not going to be as crazy as Jodorowsky, <laughs> and he's not going to be as precise as Villeneuve. And see, that's the trade-off. So you have these two people that are very high in one area and one person that's, you know, halfway with both of them. And so a, a Wes Anderson, where he's operating as this complete visionary, but he's also operating as uh, somebody who can execute a project yeah. and, and bring it together and so precisely. if you had the two... Um, Jodorowsky and Villeneuve, and this is all mm-hmm. in theory. I'm not saying any yeah, of this no, is exact no. science. Yeah. Um, if you have them working together somehow, through some miracle, mm-hmm. they create something that's as crazy as Jodorowsky, but as well executed as Villeneuve, mm-hmm. rather than settling for less with one person, if you well, know what I'm saying. And, it's and, just theory. <laughs> and just to bring it all back to No Way Home, because that's all I can keep thinking about, uh, that's I, I imagine that's exactly <clears throat> what happened. You have John Watts, the director. He's in charge. But he's working with Kevin Feige. They're working with all these art teams. They're clearly working with people that love the Tobey Maguire Spider-Mans and the Andrew Garfield Spider-Mans and the Tom Holland Spider-Mans because they're drawing villains and all these things from these different films. So they, there are people that have passion for all these things, but they're bringing them to the table yeah. and, and balancing all of that to get a product that isn't an absolute mess. Because honestly, there's like 99 ways <laughs> if someone that wrote movie should have been me, terrible. If I saw this on like yep. WhatsApp or something as like a fan fiction, I would say that is so dumb. Yep. That that would never happen. That yep. would, But it's just, that is where execution really matters. And that was probably Jodorowsky's problem. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I think at the end of the day. I think he's too much of a personality. He's too obsessed with not just his vision, but the belief that he's the only one that can possibly. There's a lot of ego there. Yeah, there? a lot. Uh, and again, he seems like a wonderful, I would love, like I wouldn't mind having dinner with him for a second. I'd talk his ear off and let him talk my ear off. <laughs> You'd probably get your ear off, talked yeah, off more, but you know. He's fascinating to listen to. Would I want to be actual friends with this person? No. <laughs> he would drive me insane. You, yeah, um, you wouldn't want to be too close to them, would no. you? You wouldn't and, want to carry his no. And I appreciate <laughs> the people there that worked with him the whole time. They just, they're in love with him and they love his energy and all of that. I just, that is not me. Uh, I I would not be able to stomach a, a long... I, I like, honestly, I like to hear his stories. Just yeah. his yeah. personal stories. And that's what everything is to him, huh? Yeah. Like him talking, it sounds like a hero's journey, how he um, convinced... Uh, that one guy to play the emperor. Yeah. That yeah. that's incredible to me. Like he took that bet to answer how he wanted to and he's like Or like yeah, when he walked in it. the room and saw Mick Jagger. Yeah. He just locked eyes with yeah. him and Mick Jagger locked eyes with him and he walked over and he's just like you're going to be in my movie and it, Mick Jagger's like, "Yes." It sounds like a movie itself. Yeah. And you know, I even I even really questioned, did that happen? That sounds <laughs> well, too like one of the most famous rock stars in the world at the time. And you walk over to him and say, you're going to do my thing. And he just says, yes. It feels a little kind of sugary of a memory. You probably cut out some details. Like, yeah. you know, it was 20 minutes into the party. And I said, hey, yeah. you, you got to be in this. And he's like, oh, yeah, I heard about it. I guess yeah. I will. Yeah. You know, it's – but still, it's – He just got so high later. But that's just probably what makes the... him so great or so epic. impressive or epic of yeah. a – you know, creators, just that he really knows how to exaggerate and dramatize. And And that's why I just, I kept, when I watch that documentary, I keep thinking of documentaries I've seen about cult leaders. Because (laughs) I really do. Um, Because the way he presents information and his vision and the way he sells people on joining him and how full in they go. I mean, they go 
they just give their entire lives and careers to the man. And yeah. and it's and they like wholly him. believe in his vision. And at no point does anybody stop him and say, There is no way a studio is gonna go insane. for that. And there is no way. The one guy, whoever it was, he told him, Pack up your things, yeah. sell everything, move to France. Yeah, he's just like, Okay. Right. Like the guy's Jesus or something. Come follow me. All right. But that's because um, he just you know. he has such an energy to him, like yeah. someone you really want to follow. Yeah. Almost like you. Oh, don't. You call later. You compliment me too much on this show. <laughs> what? You do. It's You're it's, always saying like, oh, it's so genius, the movies you put together. And okay, I'm going to let you, you keep saying it because I do. I do. <laughs> you seem like you wanted something to I do. hate yourself for. So. It's all right. <laughs> I, I need that sometimes. Uh, so uh, if you haven't but, seen Jodorowsky's Dune, fascinating documentary. It's great. It's, it's especially fun in between your first watching of – Villeneuve's Dune mm-hmm. and maybe a second watching. Um, I I think that would be a lot of fun. Oh yeah, we should do it together. Uh, I'm good with it. Uh, so this week right you now. have three movies. You have you have Fargo, Looper, <laughs> and um, oh, what was the other one I gave you? Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. Uh, for the next episode, you're actually going to get four movies, and we're gonna one of them is going to be a challenge movie. That <laughs> I suspect. No, I sus. I don't want to distract you from these three. Okay. I suspect you're actually going to hate. Uh, but you're going to have a lot of thoughts about it. But you might, you might love That's it. That's your prediction. Set it in stone. No, no. With the pink I cross? just, I, I, I want to start to have some fun with this and and really start to expand on things. The 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 next set of four after this one, we're going to talk about everything from music to sound design, cinematography. We're really going to start talking about. And when you're watching these three, I even want you to start trying to be as conscious of you as you can. Don't let it distract you. Don't ever get to that point. But just be aware of like, try to pick up on things. A be aware bit. of what these different elements are. What okay. is the music doing right now? What is the the sound design doing right now? What's what the, is what are the puzzle pieces to this? Yes, yeah. I just watched a movie called Spencer. It's actually about Princess Diana, and it's presented as a fable. And it's this. It's this. Uh, it just takes a picture of her over a couple of days where she's just found out her husband's cheating on her, and she's having a mental breakdown over this, and. You can see things on screen and then suddenly realize they didn't actually happen. You're in her mind. And the sound design in the music is so interesting because sometimes it's driving. Uh, sometimes it's lyrical. Sometimes it's jazzy. And it it really is working to put you into the unspoken mode of what she's feeling or thinking. Fully express the emotion. Yes. And it's using all of the tools at its disposal. Um <sighs> And so not all of these movies, but but Fargo particularly, um, it's one where I think there's a lot to talk about how they use music, how they use performance, how they use kind of the empty space where nothing's happening and there's just a pause uh, or, or it doesn't seem like a scene that should be there. The Coen brothers are always very precise. If there is a scene in that movie, it not only belongs, it has purpose there's one scene in the middle of fargo that people have debated about since it came out and it's considered one of the greats as far as a movie goes Uh, but there is one scene that people just don't understand i didn't understand it for a long time until recently and i've mauled it over like why is that scene in that movie no it's okay I'm, i'm telling you people have tried to figure it out forever and and once oh, you figure it out, oh, well, okay. you, they've never answered it, the directors. Right. <laughs> they don't comment about that kind of stuff a lot. And so it's just something that, that people who love the film 
go back and forth. What are they trying to do here? Because they don't waste anything. So why is this scene here? And you can get the same thing from sound design and from music and from cinematography and Wes Anderson, just looking at, at the frame and the way that he's blocking out an image. There's a reason he's going for a specific tone, whether it's storybook or he's going for an emotion from you, or he's going for something that's trying to draw you into this very fictional world. And uh, I'd love any filmmaker that really makes me forget that there's this barrier of a screen between my world and their world. So, yeah. (laughs) So, Fargo, Looper, Ginger Rabbit. Yep. I'm interested what the reason for that order is. Well, it's it's more just a don't don't look too far into this stuff. I'm not that smart. Well, see, I thought the connection between Revenant Mm -hmm. and – Budapest was that they're both painting like. Mm, that's 100% <laughs> true. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I mean, not not as far as my intention for oh, it, okay. but you can you can you take any great film and you put it next to another great film and you will instantly start to find connections because behind it all, even though the vision's different, the style's different, whatever else, there's only so many stories. There's only so many ways to present a story. And there's only so many tones. There's only so many genres. There's only so many conflicts you can put on the screen. And then everything you dress around it is is just trying to present it in a different way. But at the end of the day, these are all about love, death, fear, these these hate. yeah, and, hate. and we connect to them as an audience because they use these elements that we're familiar with. They just present them in a way that keeps our brains engaged because they're doing it in an unfamiliar way. So, yeah, that's my yeah. that's my soapbox. Wow. That so, was a way to introduce them. There you go. <laughs> so, uh, very know. excited for that. Uh, Anthony, I hope you have a great Christmas. You too. It's going to be a good time. We'll, yeah. uh, we'll find some time to get Man. together over Christmas, and John will be in town. I might have you meet John. Okay. And maybe Before you'll finally meet Clint. Meet Clint. Gosh. Hey, Clint. No, Talk to me sometime. Yeah, <laughs> maybe you'll finally meet Clint. Um, maybe we'll all exist in the same space. That would be incredible. It would. Then you can Seriously. verify that Clint and I are not the same person. Yeah. Yeah, I might have to. I might do that. Yep. No, he definitely – no, I definitely see. I see now. Clint's, Being a mega fan of Cinebabel. Clint's you know. just a wonderful person. He seriously I love is. Clint. I can tell he, he's a really deep person yeah. just by I, how he talks about this art. I cannot wait for you to hear the episode that's coming up Sunday. We got so silly. It's it's kind of dumb, but we had so much fun. It's a Christmas episode, yeah. but it's a very different Christmas episode. You guys Christmas are always episode. so serious, you know? You have like one laugh moment in the entire episode every oh, episode. No. You know? We laugh a lot. <laughs> yeah, this next do. one, we laugh a lot. Uh, so, uh, thanks as always for listening. This has been Sin Apprentice episode three. I had a very good time. I'm looking forward to episode four. Anthony pointed out most of our Sin Apprentice episodes drop on the 20 something of every yeah. month. Part one and, and part so, two. Uh, have been you on know, the maybe we'll get a little more frequent, but uh, we tend to be busy. So, we'll just we'll keep chugging along. I enjoy this, though. Oh, so. me too. I'm finally really getting comfortable, too. I like, it. I just. Yeah, this episode, you were just. You were clicking. Mm-hmm. We were we it were we were actually talking over no each other probably too much. Well, <laughs> we were both just um, that excited. But we're so excited. I know. What, what can we do? Yeah, I'm yeah. sure people can listen to two at a time. Yeah, the, if they don't like us, then go find some other yeah, podcast. There's a lot better. Yeah, you white supremacists, <laughs> go find something. Oh, that's else. definitely what it is. Going men on for here. men. Yeah, yeah that, men's rights group. I know what they're up to. If you're listening, I don't like you. All right. Well, this has been, like I said, Cine Apprentice Episode 3. You can find us on CineBabbleCast.com. Eventually here, we probably should add Anthony there somewhere. Uh, but uh, then you can find us where all of your popular podcasts are found. 
and uh, at some point here, as we get more Cineprentices going, we'll probably set it up as a, a separate channel too. It'll still pop up on the Cinebabble feed, but uh, I know uh, there's some other things we can we can do, and maybe Anthony just takes this and runs with it, and who knows what he'll do. He has a grand plan. Trust Kenan. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Well, thanks as always for listening. Have a great Christmas. Anthony, do you want to spider goodbye these people out of here? Bye bye. <laughs> it's always my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> bye <Buh-bye>. bye. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>